Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever, drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now let's get to the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yelling what it goes. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my asses. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. This is episode number 101. And continuing with the 100th episode celebration, the guest for this episode is techno pioneer Detroit's own Carl Craig. As one of the producers and DJs that helped shape the evolution of electronic music both in Detroit and around the globe, Carl Craig has hit a legendary status by continuing to not only produce quality music in a variety of styles for multiple generations, but still is a staple in the global techno community. During our chat, we talked extensively about what it is to be a good DJ and how it is to be a fearless DJ, along with how you can balance your personal life with your DJ lifestyle. The history of Detroit techno and Carl Craig's childhood. So let's get on to the interview with Carl Craig. And we were just, um, before we started rolling, we were talking about some of the things that he's into these days. You know, what are you working on right now? Uh, well, right now I have a radio show on Worldwide FM um, that uh, just started two months ago. This is my second episode that I'm doing. And um, uh, it's really interesting as we were, we were talking that, you know, my... Uh, my scope as a DJ, you know, I'm looking for music that uh, can, you know, work at festivals, 10,000 people in front of you, as well as work in, you know, larger clubs with 1,000 or 2,000 people in front of you. And also <laughs> things that can work when I play small clubs that I can rock, 
like clubs and stuff. So my view of, of how to pick music is is a little um, uh, narrow for for that kind of stuff. Of course, I always try to you know hype up my boys, my label, you know Detroit music, that kind of stuff. But you know there are some abstract Kyle Hall tracks I can't play. So this gives it the, gives me an opportunity to to you know not only play things that are more difficult for me to to play at a at a at a big place you know at a festival but that um that I can you know dig deeper and find other other things uh you know that that could be interesting for the show do you feel like if if you had the opportunity to to play like a smaller space that you can actually get down and do some of those more abstract tr- uh, ab- abstract tracks yeah i mean it depends on on uh, how long i play so there's some venues that i'll say okay you know fuck it i want to play six hours eight hours whatever and that gives me a really large possibility to do it so like and and it was funny and and pasha in abitza um uh, which i've been playing in random random people's gigs for for years and it's always like okay boom 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 that kind of thing for cocoon which is really funny because they're great friends of mine but it was really funny because they're not known for funk and they're like hey play a funk set <laughs> right right okay you know so from beginning to end I played a funk set and you know I was playing engine engine number nine and you know James Brown and Parliament and you know um uh funk disco stuff and straight disco I was playing Shalimar and playing you know the whispers and playing all these things and uh when I have the opportunity then you know and and even in in other scenarios I'll play I'll start playing Miles Davis at the beginning you know just to warm up the room to get to get on on point with what I really want to do I have I've always seen like on your uh, social media and on Twitter you'll always uh, talk about being a fearless DJ yeah you know what does that mean to you yeah yeah um you know when when I was listening to radio um when electrifying mojo was on uh what you could hear within that four hours of his of his radio show i believe it was four hours five five hours or whatever um you could hear a little bit of everything you know i mean good lord you might play some led zeppelin in there you know as well as funk as well as craft work as well as right, right. you know the english new romantic stuff like visage um peter frampton elton john you know he was playing all this stuff and that's what I think that DJing, you know, playing music is really about is playing, you know, great music. What um, like, for instance, using the beats as a as a as, as a template for this conversation, you know, um, people have gotten to the point that they think that the beats of sound is this kind of 24 hour sound of, you know, just the same kind of beat that right. that you could take. <laughs> You know, you could take E2 or you could take Coke 2 or you could do whatever. And that's <laughs> that's your thing. And that's the beat of the island. That's what people people uh, uh, talk about. And I've gotten arguments with people over it, you know. <laughs> but the real sound of Ibiza is more like what Electrifying Mojo was doing because they called it a Balearic sound in the 90s when Pete Tong and, and, uh, and Paul Oakenfold came over and they heard DJs playing a mixture of every. They would play, you know, Spanish music. They would play disco. They would play early house. They would play funk. They would play rock. They would play, you know, uh, a guy who, who rents his place out to us sometimes, he came to Ibiza because of Pasha. And at that time, they were playing Pink Floyd and they were playing, you know, okay. all, all right. different types of music. And that's 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 really the real Ibiza sound. 
And, um, you know, for me, the real Detroit sound is like what Electrifying Mojo was doing. Or when you heard Jeff Mills playing as the wizard, you know, he played Fat Boys, he played Egyptian Lover, he played, <laughs> you know, all um, uh, play at your own risk. He played Junie Morrison. He played all kinds of stuff. So so that's that was to me, you know, you're playing party music, but, you know, you didn't have to adhere to this kind of, you know, thing where you're playing. Um, you know, in many cases, music that doesn't mean anything as a bridge to play your big hits, you know, and and a lot of guys, they just try to play it like with EDM. They just try to play the hits from beginning to end. And it's it's really not not a stretch to do that. It's not a stretch to it's a stretch to play a track that will potentially clear the floor and then come back with something else, you know, Um there's a documentary uh, about uh, house music and how house music sounded. Sound, uh, sound uh, came about. Uh, DJ Pierre was talking about um, Ron Hardy when he played Acid Tracks for the first time. And he played Acid Tracks early to see how it would work. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like people were standing there. They didn't know what to, <laughs> what to expect. But, of course, there weren't any people there at, at the time, too, when he played early. There were just a few people there. Played it uh, early. There were a few people that might have been into it. A bunch of people standing around, didn't know. He said by the fourth time, the place went nuts. People were going crazy. And that's what you need. You don't need to, to you know, play somebody else's playlist. You find your own thing. And then, yeah, you know, you might have two hours to play. You play it, and it might not work. And then you just wait, and you play it again. And then people would be like, okay, I know that sound, you know, and then you just kind of right, right. keep keep pounding it in. Whether whether you're, you know, playing to a festival of 10,000 people or you're just this a DJ at a sports bar, mm. is it still possible to be fearless? Mm. Yeah, it it is. I mean, you have to take the risk of not getting hired again. <laughs> that's that's what it comes down to, you know. You have to risk it because of course, you're at a at a bar, playing a sports bar, and people, you know, they probably want to hear like soft sale all night long, you know, <laughs> or, or hear uh, whatever they hear on the radio, Migos and, right. and and Future and and all that kind of stuff. But you know, your job is to is to uh, influence them in some way. I, I we use the word educate, yeah. but most people are dumb and they don't want to learn anything. So you have to <laughs> you have to say something else in that way that people will say, "Oh yeah, you know, it's exposure, you know, or or I give you, I'm giving you a gift. This is a gift for you, you know. Hey, this music is a gift. This is something special. Get on the mic. Yeah. This is something <laughs> special. Y'all ain't heard this before. Hopefully you love it. Right. <laughs> you know, or, I know you're going to love it. Not even hopefully. It's like positive affirmation. I know you're going to love this. <laughs> what about this notion? It it just seems like um a lot of um, DJs will play almost the same songs from popular artists. Yeah. Like it'll be like the same four Prince tracks, same four Michael Jackson tracks, you know, when there's so many, and we're not talking about one hit wonders. We're talking about a lot of artists who have more than one good song. You know, why can't, you know, DJs play more songs from these artists? Even if they play those songs that they always play, why can't they just like maybe the next song play like a deep Prince song, you know? Why do you think people don't do that? Because they're scared more than likely. You know, um, some people don't have a scope past 
the concept of popular music. Um, and you get people who become DJs for, for various reasons. And uh, same as, as being a, a rock guitarist, you know, you usually become one in order to get girls. <laughs> that's, that's usually what it is. So, you know, you play whatever is going to make the girls dance. Right. And that's, that's the most important important aspect for for those or the most important idea but um so you don't really take risks so much because of that you know um because you think that it's it's not going to be accepted the girls or that people might throw something at you or that they don't you know and i think that's part of being a dj is getting shit thrown at you sometimes <laughs> you know that <laughs> because it it happens to everybody you know, whether you're big or whether you're not big or whatever, that you'd get some dickweed that's in the audience <laughs> that just, right, right. you know, whether they're trying to get your attention, so they throw something at you. Because Jeff Mills, I mean, somebody threw glasses at him, you know, at a gig. It's it's online, and, and that's horrible. You know, this genius right. is getting stuff thrown at him. And, you know, he does what exactly you're supposed to do is you just stop the music and you walk away. <laughs> you know, Fuck this, like, man. I'm leaving it. <laughs> yeah, you, you want a party? Okay, I'll give you a party, but you know, you got to be cool. And and uh so, you know, if you put on Ballad of Dorothy Parker from Prince, it's a fucking great song. It's a, it, but it's something for people that you have to kind of think because the rhythm isn't just a normal rhythm. You know, guys that are risky DJs that are incredible DJs like Kenny Dixon, he'll play it. Yeah. You know, no problem. You know, but you get people who aren't risky, they're not going to touch anything that goes in, into that realm. So, you know, there's a record that I, that I love to play before I do a live set. And it gets me so amped up. It's called 17 Days from Prince. You remember this one? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, 17 days till the <laughs> rain comes down. And I get so amped <laughs> before I get on. And then, you know, I love that feeling of, of having that. But you won't get a you won't get a DJ that'll, that'll play that as a Prince classic. You know, a, ris a risky guy will play it. A guy who knows will play it. But, you know, a normal guy, he'll put on, you know, your typical Little Red Corvette or, you know, Whatever. Erotic City. Erotic City. Oh, yeah. yeah, Erotic City. I mean, <laughs> they used to be my favorite song as a kid. I'm sick of that song. You know, because <laughs> it's just that's just a go to house, you know, hybrid Prince track, you know? So Right, right. No, there's so many tracks I'm just like uh, I could care less if I ever hear any of these songs mm -hmm. again. And these and this spans from you know, from R and B to hip hop and it just like Okay, if you want to play that one song, cool. Mm -hmm. But maybe right after you play something else, mm -hmm. and pe people might you know put two and two together and be mm -hmm. like, oh, what's that? Mm -hmm. That oh, th that's the same people that are on that song that I really like. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I was missing out on that, and we can. What is that? You know, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Do you do you feel like um? Do you feel like crowds are more? you know, open-minded these days, or does it depend on the DJ and the sort of niche that they're in? Oh, um, it's unfortunate because uh, electronic music is becoming so commercialized now, especially with the with the biggest festivals and, 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 oh, yeah. and, and what they're doing. Um, everybody, everybody's, Instagram has to have everyone's hands in the air, you know, 
It's it's like uh, a friend of mine in in Holland. He posted photos of the after. You know, everybody sitting outside of the club after the club is closed. And it's like, yeah, that's what I want to see more of <laughs> because that's the real part. That's really what the real deal is, is that after thing, those people just kind of kind of sitting there. And um, so, you know, we're normalized to think that a great party is those points where everybody's hands in the air. But that might be only one song on a person's two hour session. Right. You know, where everybody's hands are and I've seen that before and I've been to in, in those situations before where it's like, you know, yeah, the set's going good, but not everybody's got their hands up. Not everybody's cheering and like it's a football game or whatever. And there's only certain DJs that are really good at, at making it happen. Like Luciano is excellent at bringing people from point A to point B and they're just going nuts for it. They're just <laughs> thinking that it's that it's like, uh, um, you know, that that they're at a, a at a um, um, FC Barcelona or you know whatever. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I might have lost your question there though. Uh, we're just, you know, talking about if people are open-minded, if crowds are open-minded, or yeah. it just like depends on the niche that they're in. Yeah. Um. And and. That was kind of my point, is that people think that that's what they're supposed to do at, at parties so you or festivals, and, and it becomes where it's maybe a bit more closed-minded, you know, for folks. Uh, what's, what's the guy who, who was doing Tomorrowland, and he's doing the aerobics and... And all that that kind of stuff. Did you see that? Oh, video? I saw that. I don't know. I, I don't know his name, but that shit was crazy. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was quite insane. And you know, it was. It's interesting that somebody put him on, because it it was, you know, maybe like an like, like watching an interactive art exposition or something. You know, performance. Right, and, right. But the music that he's playing is totally like horrible, and. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that the majority of the set people were like leaving, you know. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, but because of what he was doing, DJs hated it. But as an artist, if that was the intent was for it to be an art exposition, uh, ex exposition, then yeah, I think it was great, you know. <laughs> and I think people are closed-minded because of that. But yeah. Um, festivals make it possible for people to be very um, closed-minded because they expect something that's going to be a festival performance unless you're doing a live. And when you're doing a live as a band, then you can play ballads. Yeah. Then you can slow it down a bit. Then you can speed it up again. But for DJs, it's very closed-minded because you got to keep it at a pace that is – <laughs> be like, ah, yeah, yeah. about to get off, <laughs> you know, play whatever that Moby track was, 300 BPM. Right. <laughs> Boom. And it's like, ah, yeah, yeah, You know. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think it's the, you know, ultimately the DJ's job to get the crowd engaged? And is there just times when it just it isn't going to happen? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It It is... It is important. Um, the DJ, in in some case, musically is like an MC, you know, getting on and getting people interested and in, in going. And and 
the DJ at the beginning, and I and I say this for festivals or parties or or even nightclubs. The DJ at the beginning is the most important guy of the whole night because or the whole thing because he sets the mood. So if you're in a club and the guy is banging <laughs> before anybody's walked in the door, right? And they're at you know he's at 140 and people are are just kind of walking in the door. He could blow it for the next round of DJs because the next guys might be, you know, house DJs and they can't, you know, the mentality hasn't changed. They have to play something in order to, to, um, uh, clear the palette of the room. You know, you might even have to just come on and just play ambient music for 15 <laughs> minutes to get people to just kind of settle down. Yeah, yeah. And then you can start playing your thing and ramp up, up the thing. So, so the, the, um, the DJ that starts the night is so important because he gets people in that frame of mind ready for Lil Louis Vega or ready for Todd Terry or ready for Ricardo Villalobos or ready for um, Fatboy Slim or, or whatever. Yeah, I've, se- I've seen there's been times, uh, you know, especially around here where you might take an earlier slot or the mid slot. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you, do you like, you know, doing those earlier slots yeah. tonight? Yeah, it's my favorite because, I, like, I, like I said, I, it, it makes it where I can – um, I can actually open people's minds more because I can play stuff that I couldn't play at a peak time. Right. You know, I could play the funk set. I could play jazz. I could play these things. And it doesn't bother me if people are just kind of mulling around and they're getting drinks or whatever because it's fun to me and it feels good. And at least if they're sticking around, they're hearing it. You know, yeah. I've I've said it um, in the past when Avicii was alive, I'd say, yeah, you know, that would be the perfect opener for anybody because you know nobody's gonna leave you could play whatever the hell you want to (laughs) you could play anything (laughs) and they're just gonna stick around they might they might not like it but they will hear it they will get that chance to hear it and um you know with radio we don't have that anymore where you have somebody like electrifying mojo uh, dave dixon i think his, his name was on wabx or or you know guys that were playing alternative stuff they were playing you know and you had the opportunity to go back and then switch stations and go back and go back and forth and hear things where when you're on internet radio most of the time you're like okay i want to hear techno and then you know boom (laughs) it's just techno or or satellite radio you know it's like okay i go to the hip-hop station it's only hip-hop it ain't nothing else you know you go to diplo it's only electronic yeah nothing else you know and and you just get into this this uh, uh, range that is that is like a tunnel vision musical yeah. tunnel vision. Do you ever feel like and maybe this is more so for smaller gigs um, that it's almost like you t- you turn into like background music for just everybody there and you don't know if there's actually a vibe there to actually be a part of the music you know maybe people are just you know. It's like almost like a meetup to figure out how they're going to get fucked up later on. Right, right. sure, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, you get that, definitely. Um, like when, when you play at small places that are bars, usually the owners will get mad if you're not playing stuff that's going to make people buy drinks. Right, you right. Know, if you play stuff that make them leave, then you're not doing the job that you're supposed to. Um, uh, in in uh, in Spain, it's normal for people to do kind of like a tailgate thing. So they come to the to the party, they sit outside, they get totally drunk and screwed up outside, and then they <laughs> come into the party, and then you know they do it to save money or they do oh, it yeah. how, however they do it. 
there was a festival that I was playing with Richie Houghton, and this is when he was doing his minus parties. And um, we had the other room. I came into his room, and I can't remember who was playing Magda or something. And people were just standing around the whole time, but they were jam-packed like sardines standing around, waiting for Rich to come on. And it was quite incredible to see that, you know. Do you ever get bored as a DJ, and what do you do to sort of get out of that funk? Huh. That's, that's, a, that's a very tricky question because um, everybody gets bored at their jobs. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've seen your tweets. <laughs> Dude, definitely. <laughs> so everybody gets bored at their jobs. Um, when when uh, playing a gig and, um, you know, I'm not my own cheerleader. I'm not the kind of DJ that sits around and, you know, tries to to get, you know, get the audience going that kind of way. It feels like like somebody's dad being at the gig like, "Come on kids, let's dance." You know, I don't I don't like that. I like young kids, how you doing? Yeah, you know. And you never saw Miles Davis doing any of that stuff when he was alive. So no, I, I don't. Yeah, some people are better at it than others. Some people so, are, so, yeah. Some people just it is it just isn't their style to yeah be up there you know you, you don't see you don't see you know John Digweed up there mm. on the mic right he's just up there cool and composed and yeah. gets through his stuff like a champ you know and but I'll get on the mic I don't have a problem with getting on the mic and talking, right. talking a little shit that's no problem so sometimes that that um, that uh, uh, loosens up things and gets gets rid of the monotony a bit you know. Um, uh, I used to drink a lot of tequila. That would always keep me interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would always keep me a little interested. But I don't need to, I don't need to do that all the time. You know, that's not, right. not necessarily how you stay on the planet and maximize your time on the planet by, you know, getting drunk every night. Because you know, if I got four gigs a week, five gigs a week, and I'm drinking, you know, half a bottle of Patron every night, well, you're you always know, traveling, man. So yeah. Oh, it works a little too well sometimes, you know. But but it's even better when you don't drink for a while and then you start drinking again. Then then it's like, okay, you know, this is kind of fun. But um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a good thing to take everything with with uh, you know with with some type of care. Right. And I don't do any drugs, so that's that's a good thing. So I don't have to worry about that. But just the whole idea of DJing—do you ever get bored with it? If so, how do you recharge your batteries? I try to listen to all different types of music, so it doesn't it doesn't get um, so um, monotonous, you know. Because when you're listening to house music and techno music, and and or if you listen to hip hop all day or whatever, it can get really really monotonous, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mike Banks said something that was real funny. He said, uh, um, he said that uh, sometimes you hear music that makes your hair, your ear hair grow <laughs> to protect itself, protect the, to protect your ears, your ear hair grow in order to get away from it and yeah you know there's there's a lot of people that play a lot of bad music and but sometimes that music does that bad music does help the monotony as well it's like oh man that's so bad but yeah you know it's interesting you know it's interesting what, what's going on um i you know sometimes i think the boredom probably comes from 
everything that it takes to get there. So, you know, flying, waiting at the airport for hours, waiting for connection flights, you know, different car, different taxi. Sometimes, like in Italy, like the last time I played in Italy, I got picked up in in Nice in France to drive to Italy to play the gigs and I had to go go back. So, you know, it could be an hour, it could be two hours, some some gigs in Croatia might take three hours to get to the gig in a in a in a van where it's just, you know, it's not a luxury van either. It's like a cargo van with with a bench seats and I mean it's just like, God damn, you know I think it was Alice Cooper. Don't don't quote me on it, but I think it was Alice Cooper that that said, "I don't get paid for the one hour that I'm on stage. It's the 23 hours around it that I'm traveling." The travel. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, Sven Vaith says pretty much the same thing. You don't pay me to play. You know, I do that for free. You pay me to get there. <laughs> What sort of advice would you have for any upcoming DJs, producers, any sort of musician, if they are sort of getting into those rut, getting they are getting bored, to you know sort of reinvent themselves? And that's the name of the game too: is that you have to reinvent yourself. You know, um, some people like Jeff Mills is just Jeff Mills. It's just, you know, they, um, he's he's always been an amazing DJ since I met him in 1984, you know, is just like always amazing. Um, but other people, you have to find things that are, that make, um, make it interesting to the people and you have to make it interesting to yourself first, you know? Um, so if you're in a creative rut and it's, it's the same if you're a, a, a visual artist or you're a, 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 a journalist or, or a novelist or anything you you have to find that that thing that that's inspirational and, and sometimes your your uh, imagination just stops working there's just no more imagination left you know so like for a new cat i would i would always recommend to um to listen to different music and um you know, edit stuff, sit there and, you know, it might not be your track, do some re-edits, you know, um, uh, sample some things, you know, just take some Doris Day tracks and sample them, <laughs> you know, and just, just mess around and try to make your own, own edits and stuff. Because when I'm not being, um, uh, originally creative for my own music, then that's what I'm doing. I'm editing, you know, I take, get stuff that I like and I re-edit it. And that's a lot of my set is re-editing other people's stuff and playing it. If I think it's hot, but I think something doesn't lay right, then I'll re-edit it into what it worked for my set. When you talk about being fearless, what can people do to sort of get over to those fears when reinventing themselves? Mm, again, you got to get that, in, that, that imagination running, you know, because that's, that's the only way that you can kind of kind of hype yourself up, you know? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it, when you start losing that imagination, you got to find, find something in order to jumpstart it. Even reading, I mean, I read, I, um, I used to read a lot more than I do now, but, you know, I'll go back to something like Fight Club and read that, you know, because it's one thing watching the movie is another thing, reading, 
you know, what the fuck is going on? Because you really, the imagination is is not right in front of you. Like when you're when you're uh, watching a movie, you know, you have the cinematography, you have all that stuff. When you're reading, even if you saw the movie, you're still kind of remixing it in your mind. And and uh, and I think that's that's super important. When it comes to the history of both Detroit techno and electronic music globally, we always kind of hear the same stories being told. And it's great that throughout the generations, we've been able to pass down this information from one generation of artists to, to the next, you know, new generations of fans. But, you know, we always hear the same, you know, stories about the Belleville Three, um, the same about maybe DJ Godfather. There's still, there's those, those same stories that get uh, told, you know, over and over again. Do you think there's any way that the story of Detroit electronic music or just Detroit techno or just techno as a whole can be sort of freshened up for these uh, new generations of, of electronic music fans? Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot that's talked about the clubs before techno started. So, um, uh, La Umos is one of them. You know, there's, there's some discussion when you talk about King Collier, yeah. you know, which I think is important, but, um, uh, you know, when, when, um, a number of names to Sharivari and, and, uh, the kind of music that was, was happening at that time and the kind of people that were going to the parties, you never hear about rock and talk. I don't know if you remember rock and talk. It was in Windsor no. and they were playing a lot of early techno stuff. That's where I would go in high school and her goodbye kiss and, and, uh, um, grooving without a doubt and, yeah. and, uh, suburban nights first EP and all that kind of stuff. So there are things that, that get left out, but what you don't hear a lot about and what was amazing about, um, about rap and what we hear that makes it really interesting and what you hear about, you know, rock too, yeah. is there was a lot of debauchery. There was a lot of gangsterism. There was a lot of all kinds of stuff where techno is pretty clean in comparison to to that stuff you know we don't know anything about you know all the underworld stuff that was going on uh around the time that that techno was happening you know we we don't hear a hell of a lot about the you know um uh, uh like when when i when i met jeff uh, I, I had gone to see, um, I was working with my cousin doing lights and I had gone to whatever the club was that he was playing over on uh, 8 Mile and, and Myers. Um, but I used to go also to these um, these college parties that were done at U of M or uh, um, uh, Michigan State University or some other places and seeing direct drive play and you know these these guys that were like serious scratch DJs at the time that were big DJs so you don't hear about and that's still clean it's still really clean you know but I would love to know about more of the debauchery and I've been involved in some of <laughs> been around at the girls and and you know seeing how the boys deal dealing that way but it's never been so you know, we never had that that thing where it was was so decadent, you know, that you just like like eating everything and everybody inv <laughs> involved, you know, 
and and pulling guns out on people and you know holding people over balconies by their by their ankles you know <laughs> everything every all that stuff that we know about rap and rock and roll and never never happened or don't know of anything that's happened like that in techno and I'm glad you kind of brought that up because, you know, when you go back to the late 70s going into the early 80s, you had all these sort of subcultures that were kind of sprouting up. You had hip hop, you had punk, you had hardcore, and then you had electronic music. Why do you feel like these subcultures all sort of sprung up all at the same time? Um, entertainment was a lot less... Um you know, in the in the fifties, in the fifties when rock and roll was happening, there was the advent of, of popular television, which which was important. Um, in the sixties, there was civil rights movement, Vietnam, all that kind of stuff. And in the seventies, you know, there were still issues. You know, uh, earlier part of the seventies with Vietnam and people fighting about that, but, um, but I. I think a lot of it had to do with with entertain entertaining yourself, you know, and being able to have the opportunity to entertain yourself. So, you know, punk might have been um, uh, a direct descendant of you know not liking disco. So, you know, kind of bringing rock and roll back and and the fight about that. You know, the the kind of riotous thing that you would would have that you you know would maybe. In the in the late '60s, early '70s, be involved in riots, be involved in in these things that that made it possible for those those music, the attitude, because there were still people with the attitude of it that wanted to wanted to um, uh, to to express themselves. So you know, through the music, they expressed themselves. Uh, same way, like with house, how house music came from um, the disco's dead aspect the the uh, soldier field or what, what was it in chicago where they blew out yeah, yeah. you know they, they blew the vinyl out of the disco records out of a cannon <laughs> you know so of course it opened it up for house music to you know go underground redevelop into something new and then pop out um five years six years later I feel like when it comes to like the history of Detroit techno, a lot of the guys that we talk about, whether it's Juan or Derek or Kevin or Jeff, they all kind of have that sort of in a nutshell, maybe one or two line thing that we can we can talk about them about. It's like their little story in a nutshell. But when it comes to you, when it comes to the Carl Craig story, I feel like there's still this sort of open vast enigma you're like an enigma there's like a mystery behind it how are you able to you know go so long and not sort of have that in a nutshell story about your life and career well you have to keep people guessing you know because when they when they can't guess anymore then you can become quite boring so it's like a marriage you know People think that in your marriage you're supposed to just be settled, and that's in daily mundane routine. But you know you have to keep that other person interested in you, and if you're saying the same shit 
every time at dinner. Oh yeah, how was your day? Oh yeah, it was fine. I hate my boss. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah, something interesting happened. A UPS guy tripped over a crack and blah blah blah. blah. You know that kind of stuff. Then it's it's like oh yeah, it's, you know you're getting fat together and you're getting bored together and it's just it's just silly and and that's that's not what I want in my life and that's what I don't want as a career so that's why you know I grew up listening to jazz music so jazz became interesting to me I grew up listening to, to um to classical music so classical music was interesting to me here's here's what I do um house music and techno music has always been interesting rock music has always been interested interesting to me so I never liked the concept of being locked in and typecast to to one thing because it's boring to be that way you know so you know by me working with Marcus and Wendell and and you know doing a tribe thing and Detroit experiment and doing in his own orchestra and doing the versus project and you know working with Francesco Tristano and working with with, uh, you know, doing the synthesizer ensemble. You know, there's always a story that's interesting to me. So I hope that is damn well interesting to the rest of y'all that's, that's out there, you know? Who was the first person in your life that was sort of influential to you in regards to music or making music? I have an older brother and an older sister, so definitely they were the, the first. My brother, um, uh, my brother is probably inadvertently the guy that got me to experiment with music because he had a guitar and he didn't want a guitar anymore, but my parents didn't give him the money to buy a bass, so he took two strings off. <laughs> and it became a bass, you know, that that kind of thing. So, um, you know, he, he had a big impact on me. My sister um, listened to, to other music. So she was listening to Gil Scott Heron when my brother was listening to um, Black Sabbath and and P Funk, you know, and then we all agreed on Prince, you know. <laughs> so those early days of them fighting for the radio, whether my whether my brother wanted to listen to WCHB and my sister wanted to listen to KCLW, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, but um, later on, uh, my cousin who I was working with doing lights for, he um, he had actually made a record um, before I started helping him with lights. Was it before or after? I can't remember. But he made Technicolor with Juan. And that was a big deal for me because that's the first time that I touched the synthesizer. He had some synths at home. And... You know, I think I might have saw 808 for the first time at his his place, and and excuse me, and that was like really, you know, really a huge impact on me, like huge. When was the first time you had that sort of holy shit moment where you just thought like, hey, this music thing could be something that I could do for a long time? Failure was never an option. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what it is, is. That failure was never an option. Um, because if I failed, I had to work at the post office or, you know, I had to, you know, and that that wasn't, you know, that wasn't something that, that I wanted to do. Of course, if I had to get a job, the, the post office is the way to do it. But, um, you know, I mean, my my uh, my parents were really um, uh, it was important for me to please my parents um, for for a lot of stuff. But my parents were you know regular joes so getting a job was the ultimate goal for anybody in their idea anything that was outside of and that's the way it is in detroit anyway yeah. you know 
that you tell somebody that you're doing something creative and they're like, oh, yeah, nice hobby. You're going to get a real job, you know. Oh, you're still doing that rap stuff? Exactly. Exactly. It's just, you know, you tell somebody that you're into music. Oh, yeah, you sing? It's like, no, I don't sing. I, I play synthesizers. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, what do you want to do? You want to be like the next Barry Gordy? And this is, it's, again, you know, these these mundane people that, you know, they come home and it's like, oh, yeah, where's my dinner? Yeah, what did you do at work today? Oh, I ate a ham and cheese sandwich. You know, that kind of that kind of thing. So it was never an option for me for this to never, you know, for this to be a failed, failed adventure. With having that mind state of saying failure wasn't an option, how did you deal with failure? Um, I'm I'm a person who deals on hope, <laughs> and my uh, um, uh, ex girlfriend of mine, her father was a mentor to me, and I would always say about hope, 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 hope. And he's like, "No, nah, hold on a minute, you know, yeah, you can hope all you want, but you gotta make shit happen. This is this is you know what you gotta do." So that was part of a motivation for me. But I still dealt with a lot of hope because when you, especially when you switch up doing music, doing types of music, well, you know, you get you hope that you're gonna be able to do something really good, you know. And the only way that you can definitely do something really good is if you follow the formula, formulaic templates of making a pop record. And I didn't know those templates, and, <laughs> and I, would, I would never fall into that because it doesn't interest me. You know? So it's still always hope. And with that hope, it's experimentation. You know, so the people who uh, people who die in science experiments and stuff, they're like, oh, God, I hope this works. <laughs> if I mix these two things together, I hope the whole room doesn't explode, you know. Right. You know, so so I dealt with a lot of hope. But there there is um, there is some some laser focus that you have to have in it, too. And, and he was. Thanks, Mr. Green. He was he was one of the guys that was like, yeah, you know, undo that hope. <laughs> when you're living with that sort of idea of hope, especially in a really tough city like Detroit, you know, what did the city of Detroit bring to your character? Well, I hope that I got home safely. <laughs> you know, that was, ooh, yeah, that was a, that was a lot of it because, you know, I mean, having beef with kids in high school in Detroit is a lot different than having beef with kids. And, and well, it's getting closer to it now. Unfortunately, the, the mass shootings that happened in school. But, you know, we were scared of that shit back in 1987, 86, 85, you know, that somebody uh, will catch you on the way out and, sh and take you out, you know. Uh, it wasn't about getting abducted. It was about being caught at the bus stop, not, you know, paying attention, you know. So uh, Detroit, and I had gone, um, I, you know, I don't, I'd, I'd say this now, I don't even know what high school I graduated from, to tell you the <laughs> truth. I know I graduated, but I'm not sure if I graduated from Cooley or if I, gra or if I graduated from um, uh, uh, Mumford. I'm not sure which one I graduated from, but, you know, Mumford was the last one I went to, so I guess that's where I graduated from. So this is this is like I think that's really more Detroit than anybody <laughs> can say. Me and uh DJ Stingray, 
are the two guys that are like we <laughs> have no idea where we graduated from. <laughs> I think it was Montfort. I think it was Montfort. I went to Cooley the longest, so you know I got kicked out of cast, so I definitely didn't graduate from there. <laughs> what was Carl Craig like as a kid? Who was that person? Uh, I was always in love. Seriously, like I mean, you know. You just had to be a cute girl with, you know, long hair. Man, I was in love, you know. From I from the time that I can remember remembering, I was in love all the time. You know, that was that was Carl Craig until I got married. And then then I realized that things were a little different after you get married. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh um yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was me and Always smiling, you know, not not like now where I'm just kind of gruesome in some <laughs> some situations. Um, silly and uh, and always in the music, you know. Um, I I carried records everywhere that I went, you know, cassettes, records, whatever, yeah. What was the first album you ever bought? Mm. The first that I remember buying was um Ohio Players Honey. Yeah. And uh, my dad took me to for my birthday to get a record and that's the one that I picked. And he got hell for it and I got hell for it because there's a woman pouring honey on her body. Of course you would have picked that record. <laughs> you know, and, and what was it, nineteen seventy six or something, so I was seven years old, <laughs> seven or eight years old. Speaking yeah. of being in love. Yeah, right. I mean it's <laughs> You know, yeah. And I knew those Ohio players records before, like Rattlesnake, you know, because like I said, my brother's older than I am. So it was always a bald headed chick on the front. And right. this one, she was wearing a wig or something or it was a different one that had hair. And uh, and yeah, I was seriously, seriously in love. That was that was the first one I remember. And um, uh, my mom and I, I I've said this before, I got to give her credit for it because she took the album cover and she took newspaper and she made a permanent sleeve out of newspaper <laughs> over the <laughs> over the cover of the record she slipped the record back in she said i dare you to take this paper off <laughs> i dare you to take it off and i didn't take it off but Again, to give her credit, what was what was important about this is that she let me keep the record. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, she just didn't take the record and break it and throw it away. She let me keep the record, and she didn't know what was on the record because, you know, um, sweet sexy thing. I mean, good lord, you know, the sweet sticky thing or whatever the name of the song was, which is the best song on the album. But still, you know, what they're basically talking about is sex. So I'm listening to these sex records <laughs> still with a paper sleeve over the cover. <laughs> yeah. Another record that was an early one for me that, that was a big deal was um, uh, Cameo, Alligator Woman. Okay. I don't know if you know this one. No, I don't. And I was in love with the girl on the cover. Oh, my <laughs> God. I was so in love with the girl on the cover. You know, she had like a... a uh, probably some eyeliner or something that they drew like scales on her face and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful girl. And um, 
and you know, I would I would have have uh, you know these wet dreams or whatever about <laughs> about the girl on the cover, and then the next girl that I that I would was so in love with that I really wanted to marry was Vanity. And oh my God, I was going nuts over Vanity for years, and I think it wasn't until after she died that I found out that she was the alligator woman. She was the one on the cover of the cameo record, and it blew my mind. <laughs> like, damn, what, what? But yeah, you know. When you go back and listen to those records that you listened to as a kid, like now. What sort of thoughts and feelings do you have about listening to those records? Uh, I love every every single thing that I listen to. You know, um, I had um, I had these feelings that would come from hearing the sound of the records, and I, I think that's why I'm a producer because um, when I heard um, "That's the Time We Feel Like Making Love to You." Um, uh, Roberta Flack it's a love song but when I heard it my neighbor had gotten into a car accident and the door is open and the song is blaring out and it it was not a love song to me when I heard it it was like a horror song you know the sound of it the the way the road sounded how dark the song sounded it didn't sound seductive and sultry to me it sounded like you know like like something bad had happened and it always stuck with me that way you know or when i heard papa was a rolling stone and i would just look at that gordy label going around in circles and it's <laughs> like ah oh, you know being mesmerized by by the sound and and by you know the uh, what they were saying and everything it was it was it was quite uh, impactful and it still is for me um where I remember most of the music that I grew up with, you know, and I like being able to reference that stuff, you know? Yeah, when I was... Yeah, like when I was growing up, uh, the first, you know, album I was listening to was Jimi Hendrix, Axe as Bold as Love, and Are You Experienced, along with The Who and Def Leppard. Def Leppard was my favorite uh, band, still my favorite band of all time. And it's kind of like crazy. You're like listening to those those songs when you're a kid, and they give you a sort of a certain feeling. But then you listen to them now, and you still have that sort of warm feeling about you know from your childhood. But then they might have these like different sort of feelings, or you, you know the meaning more of those songs. Uh, there's one there's one Jimi Hendrix song. It was love love and love or confusion. And the way they recorded it, they recorded it in different, you know, the instruments in different sides, you know, and the vocals in different sides. So one day I, I was listening to on the boombox and I, some, for some reason, had the side moved over to right or left or whatever. So you just heard, like, the instruments, but you heard Jimmy's voice, like, in the background almost and it was like super haunting it was kind of whoa this is kind of scary and freaky but it was like super cool like that's something that i really kind of think about you know still to this day about that song and it's something from my childhood mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. sure sure yeah, it's crazy. yeah and you know the the reason why they did 
recordings like that was because stereo was new and nobody knew how to really deal with stereo. So they would put the rhythm section on one side and the vocals on the other side or piano and the vocals on the other side. So like with Supreme records, you find a lot of that. They're real difficult to listen to in a car when they're in stereo, old, old style stereo. And um, it makes it great for sampling because you can find ways of, you know, Get sampling something without the voice, or you yeah. just have a little little bit of something in there. But yeah, it can, you know, just hearing the the room of of the mic, or you know whether they're using a spring reverb or a hall reverb, or or you know like the Motown one that was up in the attic. Um, it it can be very chilling. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Going back to you know your life as a touring DJ, how do you sort of keep your both physical health and mental health in check while doing all this touring. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I try to keep my stress level very low. Um, I don't, I don't get upset if a, a perfect example of, um, how you can, you can be cool when you travel. And I learned things from, from uh, uh, problems. So I broke my foot playing basketball, slipping on, being drunk while playing basketball, but slipping on some sand because it was near the beach, right? And I broke my foot and I went, and I, this is the second time I broke my foot. And I, second time I was on tour, that I finished the tour before I actually got it fixed. And um, when you break your foot, you learn a lot about being patient because when you're on a plane you can't be the first one off the plane with a broken foot when you're on crutches so i learned to chill and i wait until to be the last one off the plane because why do i have to be the first one off the plane especially if i got luggage you know there's no reason to get off the plane first because all you're going to do is stand there waiting for your damn luggage you know <laughs> so you just chill you just take it easy. Luggage is another thing that you learn how to be patient. So when your luggage is on the carousel, you don't have to be, when you see your luggage, you don't have to run after your luggage because it's on a freaking circle. It's on a carousel. It's always going to come back to you. <laughs> so you can just stand there and just wait until it comes back. Or you can walk towards the direction that is coming as it comes around and pick it up and walk out the door. So, you know, all this stress level stuff is just not necessary, especially when you're on tour. It's just not necessary to do because you, you're going to you're going to make the gig. You know, if you don't make the gig, then you just reschedule. You know, um, there's there's a, a lot of things that happen, drama that happens that doesn't need to, to happen. You know, you don't you don't need to be dramatic about whether, you know, shit ain't right. You know, either you play the gig with the wrong shit or you just say, I'm not playing the gig, <laughs> you know, because the CDJs aren't working right or the turntables all fucked up. It's humming, you know, and you just, OK, well, you know, I'm not going to play it. What are you going to do? Oh, well, the mob comes out. Then, OK, you got a different story, you know, but but most of most of the time your contract says that if the shit ain't right, you don't play. Right. So that's that's just so I just take it easy. Um you know, on the road, I try to eat reasonable. Yeah. You know, I uh, I like fast food, but, you know, 
Um, one one time I got really too far into eating chicken wings. I was just eating chicken wings all the time, you know. And eating chicken wings is 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 fun. And sometimes, you know, it could be great for your soul for what you're doing musically and stuff. It's like, yeah, I feel satisfied. I'm gonna play really good, you know. But it catches up on you because it's got so much salt and you know so much fat and all these things. So you gotta really really think about balancing it out. But if you're eating like you know, asparagus all the time, then it just gets boring, right. you know? Uh, I have friends who travel a lot, they're vegans. And, you know, their um, their goal of finding food is a lot more difficult. So that might make it interesting for them because they're always on an adventure to find food that they can actually eat, you know? So you find these little things that, that you know, keep your interest, that help you keep your, your health up like a regular human being does. And, you know, you make sure that, that you have good people around you. So when you have good people around you that make your life easy, then it's great. But if you got, you know, a wife that's that's acting crazy, hey. See, you got somebody that comes in and checks on you, then right. it makes your life easy. Right, right, on, right on point. Right on point, right on you know. But if you have a wife that's acting crazy, you know, then, yeah, you're going to be stressed out and... You know, everything's going to be, be screwed up. In regards to sort of mental health in the electronic music community, and like a prime example being the recent death of Avicii, he, you know, he drank his health away where he couldn't even tour anymore by age 26, and then he ends up uh, committing suicide by 28. Do you think, feel like there needs to be more discussion about mental health in the electronic music community especially when it seems like there's a lot of big expectations put on so many of these artists um there can be but people are just gonna do what they're gonna do you know so um avici and the culture they grew up with in sweden i believe he's from um for drinking may be a way different than how it is here so like um, I like red wine. I have a doctor who, um, who I went for for a checkup. He asked me, um, "Do I drink?" I'm like, "Yeah, I drink." How much do you drink? Oh yeah, half a half a bottle, a bottle of red wine, maybe a day or every two days or something like that. And and uh, he says, "Oh well, American standards by American standards, you're an alcoholic, but by European standards, it's normal, <laughs> right?" <laughs> <laughs> so so you have that that discussion and in order to appease the american standards don't drink so much why do you drink so much well i drink because it helps me to sleep okay by american standards don't drink so much take ambien it puts you on another course of being fucked up over something else you know so which one is it do you do you drink and screw up your liver or do you take the drugs and you get in a car accident because you slept walked <laughs> you slept drove or you know you did all this other stuff or the the ambient the xanax to to whatever to you know um uh you go to to the dentist and they prescribe you uh painkillers that are that are uh, opiates and then you get addicted to those things and blah, blah blah so who knows that 
in his culture, they might be heavy drinkers, you know, in his family, it might be heavy drinkers, you know, in the UK, people are drinking all the time. They're always at the pub. That's, that's the center of, of, you know, culture is going to the pub. So you never really kind of know what was happening. The, the, the discussion I think needs to be done in, uh, in school, you know, and, when when I was growing up, it was, you know, right before the Say No to Drugs thing uh, campaign that was going on. And, you know, you had that. So that kind of resonated with me. Uh, you had documentaries that were being shown on TV all the time about about uh, uses of PCP and, and, and LSD and the things that they affected, that affected you, or even those uh, Lockheed videos that, that, that uh, it's like, why did Lockheed make videos about drug use, you know? The, but we had, we had these things growing up and some people, you know, uh, adhered to it. Like me, I was like, okay, well, you know, I saw Scarface and it freaked me out, so I never wanted to do cocaine, you know. But other people saw Scarface, and then that's how modern rap music became was was by seeing Scarface and everybody wanting to be Scarface and stuff. So, you know, it it comes to your early um, exposure, your early um, uh, your early um, education to to how to deal with things and. You know, if in your household you have heavy drinkers and heavy drug users, then more than likely you're going to be a heavy drinker or a heavy drug user. So, you know, if your father is saying, oh, yeah, boy, it's okay to do this. Yeah, go on and do it. Then, yeah, you're going to do it. You know, we don't know what Avicii's household was like. We don't know uh, some of these other people that are coming out uh, that are bipolar or that have mental instabilities and stuff. What's in their genes? You know, we don't know. There are people that are just going to fall victim to it. And that's what's going to happen. Sometimes you just got to let people know that it's okay to not be okay. Mm. I guess, you know. And that was part of being weird. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that was part of being weird. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy's being weird. You know, it's like, oh, you're a freaking weirdo. And then you realize later on that he had some type of psychological issues or, or whatever. But um, and some of that weirdness, you know, Basquiat um, turned into his art and turned into what he was doing that, that made what he did great. You know, but he was a very, you know, unpredictable, mentally unpredictable person, you know. And I, I wouldn't doubt that, that Avicii had, had, you know, other problems that, that, uh, that brought. I don't, some people just aren't, couldn't be saved. Whitney Houston was one that when she died, it was like, oh, man, you know, I could have saved her. But no, I don't think I could have saved her because she had shit that was going on way before she was Whitney Houston, the singer, right. you know. Do you ever feel like some of these artists who who die at a young age, a younger age, are maybe even just too big for this world? Like their impact, their creativity is just too big for this world, and they sort of just, you know, burn out quickly. Mm, um, Do you believe in any of that stuff? Like that? I I don't actually. I believe that there are very special people in this world that see uh, the cracks that are in, you know, in our reality. Yeah. So they look at air and can see air, you know, they can see shit, you know, like, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Stephen Hawking's, yeah. 
you know i think he's one of those guys or albert einstein or whatever these guys that are that are that are that see things that we don't see you know and that's how they could perceive um uh, you know do their jobs you know they're people that know how to pick out hit records every freaking time clive davis i think is another guy that's just like you know that just quincy jones you know that just the perspective of stuff is so different that's how they can be so successful about what they do michael jackson you know whitney houston those kind of people and in order for you to get on that stage in order for whitney houston to get on that stage her ego had to be so out of whack in order to get up there to perform in front of everybody. And if her ego wasn't out of whack, she was probably making her ego go out of whack with drugs. She was doing whatever it took in order for her to, to be able to sing in front of people and be able to enjoy it herself, you know? Avicii, um, uh, Prince, uh, you know, any, any uh, Beyonce, you know? It's like you've got to have things that make you cope to be able to, to be as great as what you are, you know, because you have this talent and you have so many people. Michael Jackson has said, you know, when he was young, you had, you know, grown ass men. He was 15 years old and grown ass men were trying to borrow money off of him, you know, <laughs> and it's just it's just crazy. You know, it's, it's just nuts. So, you know, they're regular motherfuckers, but there's something that just makes them um special beyond their talent to to get to the point of of where they've been able to get to and i really really believe i think kanye might also be one of those guys that sees you know he sees air you know you don't have it's it's have, doesn't have to be smoke in the room he just sees the air he sees the particles you know um uh, john culture people have have uh i forgot what it's called where you can see color in music Yeah, um, yeah, whatever it's called. But, you know, Coltrane was supposedly one that could see color. Yeah. Uh, when music's happening, he sees colors. And that's kind of supports my point in some way, you know, because I don't, I don't have it. I don't see it. <laughs> but you're still very highly creative. I do my thing. You know. As we wind down this interview, if you had to sort of extract – some sort of lesson out of your life and career that somebody listening to this, no matter what they do, could sort of transition into their own life or career, what would that lesson be? What would that be? Um, I think the key to longevity is to have a certain, uh, uh, to be humble in some way. I think that's the key to, to sticking around that, that, you know, you're just not that dickweed that walks into the room and, and you know, you got to give me all the attention because I'm famous or I'm, I'm special or that kind of kind of thing. Um, most of the time, people who who have those those big egos, um, they can get big real fast and then they fall off and then they have a lot of problems for a long time until they get rediscovered again, you know. And by staying humble, I think you can can you know be able to to have more um, longevity in, in what you do, but also uh, to to have more peace with yourself. So Dennis Coffey's one guy that's a good example where you know he did all that great music in the '70s, and he just kind of 
you know, worked at Ford <laughs> for 30 years and then came back out and started doing it again, you know, and, and that, there's a certain amount of, of being humble that I think you, you have to have in, in order to be able to do, to do that and feel comfortable doing that kind of thing. You have to be able to say, okay, I can walk away and do something different and come back and, and do my thing and whatever. But, you know, those guys that are chasing the dream all the time, they get all wrapped up in cocaine and, and you know, just, just, you know, their habits are bigger than the amount that they make after a certain certain amount of time. Those are the guys that, that you know, their egos really, you know, got involved because their ego so big, yeah, I could beat Colt. You know, uh, yeah, it should, shit won't beat me. I could beat Colt. <laughs> Colt beat everybody's ego, you know. Yeah, I feel like in Detroit, you know, you kind of have, like, two different types of people in our scene. You know, you have those people that, yeah, they did step away, went and got the job at Ford or uh, at some sort of car plant. And then you have also the people who, you know, might have got, like, hooked into drugs and went down this downward spiral. But, you know, they were both able to sort of come back and do music again. You know, what do you think about those people, and how do you think they were able to step back into doing music again? Um... Well, again, the, the ego that gets fed is how many people love you and that people love you. They all love me. They all love me. I love my fans and they love me, that kind of thing. So knowing that people love you, then that, that definitely bring you back to wanting to get out there again, you know, that, um, that there's still an audience. And yeah, we've definitely seen it in our music scene where you've seen people get over their addictions, their demons, even if they're in their 40s and 50s, and now they're, you know, back DJing, getting gigs out of town in different countries, you know, what do you feel like they had to do to sort of, you know, persevere and get over their demons? Mm, I, you know, I don't know because I haven't been in that situation um, myself. Uh, whether it's getting over their demons or just, I, you know, it probably has more to do just with that rediscovery that people have have been able to discover discover you because there's some guys that and that's what we try to do with detroit love is that we try to to bring out some cats that never had that global um uh phenomena you know um one of the people al al esther you know who's one of the best djs i've ever heard in my life is amazing that just never had that opportunity and we try to give give that opportunity to, to people um that we feel is deserving of the opportunity as well and um but you know um some some people are just discovered late some people are rediscovered late you know that's, that's just the way it is i always like to close out all my interviews with the same question and the question is who is somebody that's been a part of your life or career that i could realistically interview that would have some great stories or lessons to talk about <laughs> Um, hmm. I always Derek May is a is an interesting interesting uh, person to talk to. You know, yeah. Always Derek May, um, because Derek Derek and I are brothers. Um, he's known me since since I was runt starting out in the business, <laughs> and and uh, you know um, he he I think he's learned. Um, for me, maybe not as much as I've learned from him, but you know, uh, he has he has uh, 
stories from from our early days and <laughs> him putting me on and, and all that. And, and there'll be a lot of great things to come from him. Okay, before we get out of here, where can people go online to get more information about everything you've been doing? Right. Uh, from my website, carlcraig.net, and also Twitter and, and uh, Instagram, which is carlcraignet. Very easy. So that was my interview with Carl Craig. It was definitely cool to be able to interview him for this 100th episode celebration of mine. Um, I've interviewed him so many times for other publications, but it was great to finally get him on the podcast. Like always, all the links that he said at the end of the interview will be listed in the show notes for this podcast at freshisthepodcast.com. So let's get on to the Fresh is the Word, Fresh Pick of the Week. This episode's pick is the new album, This Behavior, from the Detroit electro duo Adult. The two members, Nicola Kupras and Adam Lee Miller, craft another chapter in their stored career with songs that mix the dark and the haunting with the lively and dynamic. There's always this interesting dichotomy in the pair's music where there's sort of like just like a dance between the darkness and the light within the rhythms of each song. So go pick up the new album, This Behavior, from the Detroit electronic duo, Adult. It just came out this past Friday, and if you want to listen to it or purchase it, there is links in the show notes also for this episode at freshisthepodcast.com, or you can just go straight to their Bandcamp page, which is adultmusic.bandcamp.com. So that's another episode of Fresh is the Word in the books. But before you get out of here, I definitely want to remind you on how you can support the podcast. First off, I want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Foulmouth for the theme music for Fresh is the Word. And also, if you want to help share the podcast, you can always go to freshthepodcast.com and just share any links on the websites for any of the episodes on any of your social media. And also, you can go to Fresh. You can also subscribe to Fresh is the Word on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Mixcloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. Just type in Fresh is the Word, and it should come up. And just hit the subscribe button. And if you would like to leave a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, it would definitely help out the podcast. And I'll give you a shout out if you do. You can follow me online on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly Omega Fresh, and at Facebook at Facebook.com slash kfresh and you can follow fresh of the word online at twitter on at fitw podcast on instagram at fresh is the word podcast facebook at facebook.com slash fresh is the podcast all right that's another episode in the books thank you for listening goodbye and good night fresh, 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 fresh is the word